So tonight, I am going to be calling Julianne Blam. Julianne has been doing theme park stuff forever. She worked for Disney for lots and lots of years. I met her as a show uh, production person. There we go. Okay. There we go. Hey, hi. Hey, Julianne. <laughs> hey, ladies and gentlemen, this this is Julianne Blam. So uh, welcome, Julianne, to Bopisodes, which is Born on Purpose Episodes. So uh, um, I'm interviewing great people that figured out what they wanted to do in life and did it. And, uh, uh, and I did that because I had such a struggle myself figuring out what why am I here? What am I doing? You know, what should I be doing? So um, I figured it would help me and lots of other people to, to discover how other people found their way. That first question I want to ask you is, I don't tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, your education, your background, that kind of stuff. And then if, along that path, if you, if you kind of remember the time when you went, oh, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to direct my life. If there was one, you know, or if it was a combination okay. of things or whatever. But that's what I'm shooting for. Yes. It's kind of a long story. <laughs> I uh, was always a musician as a child growing up, and I majored in music in college. I got a degree in vocal performance and a minor in piano. And I thought, well, when I graduate from college, I'll go to New York City and try to get, you know, on Broadway or sing or something like that, because I've done a lot of acting too. And so I got there and tried it for about six months. I went to the Strasbourg School um, of Drama and I sang with Giancarlo Minotti because I'd been trained in opera and he took me on as a student. So, but I just realized that it's a very hard life and there are, in New York, you know, one, two percent of the people who are in the arts actually make a living in the arts. And I thought, wow, my chances of succeeding in this are small. So I figured, what can I do in New York that I can't do anywhere else? Well, that was work on Wall Street. So I wow. went down and started working on Wall Street for Payne Jackson Curtis. And um, I, didn't have, I, I didn't Wow, so, so went, you're, you're in yeah. the financial world. That's incredible. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> so, and I started working on my MBA at NYU, uh, Graduate School of Business, the Tisch School. Um, and really enjoyed it. Ended up getting a job with a division of IBM selling computer timeshare when computers were the size of, you know, your kitchen. Um, and uh, the, uh, the software was, you know, very big and cumbersome, so nobody could buy these things, no businesses could. And so we you would rent time and rent the software on a large computer. So I used to sell that to the financial and the insurance industry for IBM. And then I met somebody and he got transferred to Hong Kong. So we moved to Hong Kong and got married and I was no longer working. I was working in television actually. I was a news anchor um, in uh, one of the Hong Kong English speaking stations. So I really enjoyed that. But then he got transferred back to Los Angeles and that again is a highly competitive market for television and thought, I, you know, I don't have the credentials really. I had camera time, but I didn't have a lot of credentials. So I thought, well, I'll go back to my finance and computer uh, skills and get a job somewhere. Well, there were two places really hiring. One was Lockheed to be a defense contractor and the other was Disney because they were building Epcot. Wow. And I thought, oh, I'll try to get a job at Disney. And there was one, they needed a computer time sharing manager to help all the engineers access computers and learn how to use the software and things like that. So that's what I did during building Epcot. And it was, you know, fairly satisfying, but what it did give me was a huge look at how Disney 
manage their projects because I worked with engineers and architects, not so much with creative people, um, a lot of the financial execs, things like that. And when Disney downscaled um, after you know building Epcot, they didn't need all these people, but they kept 400 younger people to say, okay, you're gonna be our next generation. I said, okay, well, during that time, computers also changed. They got smaller, they sat at your desk, you could, you know, and my job kind of got phased out. But they said, you know, what she did a lot of was do financial analysis, take huge databases and bring them down to manageable size and access them. So I worked for the chairman of the board of Disney, um, analyzing future new projects, analyzing cost data, and you know, how we spent our money when we built a project, etc. And they said, well, okay, she's, she's got some building blocks to be a project manager. So they gave me a very, um, about a six month course. And, you know, it was just going to each department head and what do you do? How does your workflow, et cetera. So then I finally got to be a project manager. And at that point it was like, this is what I really like to do. I really liked understanding how the projects came together, analyzing where you get each component, um, working with the, the creative people, and you know they dream and sketch and draw and write, and getting the ideas out of them. Well, then somebody has to figure out, well, how do you build that? And so the project manager at Disney, or the show producer, um, they're the person who gets to sit down with all the special effects people and how do we do this? Can we invent that part? Is this existing? How much will it cost? And so I just loved that. And I really loved the field work. So um, when we built the uh, MGM Disney Studio Tour in Florida, that I did about 20% of that project as a project manager for Disney. And that's when I realized this is what I really love to do. Wow. So, so that you you took <clears throat> both sides of the spectrum. I mean, you started out at the at the the total art entertainment side, you know, and then you went total full on business side. And then, did did you feel like you were wandering at the time, or would you, what? I mean, oh yeah, it, I really did. And one time, I, a lot of people from Disney will remember this gentleman named John Hench, who was a legend at Disney, and he worked on the first Disney parks for Walt and had been in animation for years. And I was about mm, 32 when John had this, this thing about reading people's palms. And I think he really <laughs> liked to read pretty girls' palms. Sure, you know? of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was reading my palm. In fact, I still have a, a scar on my hand from where we were jabbing me with the pencil um, but he said you know when you're about 36 you will find what it is you really want to do so just hang in there you'll figure it out I'm like okay and sure enough it was 36 wow but yes I felt like I was wondering because things you know I enjoyed what I did but it wasn't like a passion it wasn't like wow this is really fun but what it did is it established certain building blocks for me, and I think one of my the, the keys to my personal um, success in this is that I did start in the arts because one of the things that I sort of built my career on was that I could talk to both sides of the table. I understood where the artists were coming from, and I understood what it is to have to create a piece of music. In my case, and you know sometimes. You work through it and this just part of it isn't right or sometimes it takes a long time to get the right idea and toss things out. And so it's that, that sort of delicate balance from you know pushing an artist to giving him back off time to go create and work through problems or giving him something else to focus on because a lot of times in the back of their mind they're solving that problem. They don't even know they're doing it. Sometimes right. it happens in their sleep. Um, but it's kind of watching how the, each person's creative process and how they go through it, understanding that, and, and being able to talk about what the design is to a group of financial people who are, you know, it's all pro formas and financial yeah. schedules and things like that. 
to give them the merits of why they should invest in that. Yeah, well, and that's so, about bringing those two ends together. I mean, that that's a uh, that people. You know, I came to the whole theme park thing not really realizing it was a thing, but you know, but there, there's right. a, there's a ton <laughs> of money in it, you know, yeah. and there's a ton, there's a, you know, and there's a lot of organization. It's all financial stuff. It's development stuff. It is, it's the whole spectrum of things. And you, you, you spanned right. the whole thing. I mean, you went from the art all the way to, you know, and you brought it all kind of together. Think back. Close your eyes a second and think back. Was there that time when you, you know, I don't know, maybe you pulled up that spreadsheet or you had just finished a meeting or, you know, I can imagine you going, wait, wait, this is what all the things that I've been doing has led to. Was there? Come together. Well, I think it was during my first uh, real project managing experience. Um, one of the things that I, always the way I approach a project is through the schedule <laughs> and it's assembling well what's this activity and how long does this take and when who will be doing that and how much will that cost and what do I need to actually complete that and then you know working through that's how I come to understand a project and it felt very familiar to me because when I was working on my MBA, the class I really loved most was operational procedures. Wow. And you do a lot of scheduling and floor, it, manufacturer planning, you know, all in hypotheticals. But it was like, oh, I really loved that process. And so when I was got into projects and got to do that, it felt very familiar and very something I really like to do to make order of the chaos to mm -hmm. put things into concise little boxes so that you can see the pattern of how it all works so I think that was the moment where I said oh yeah this is for me and then when you take a project to the field um, when it's actually starting to go into installation that's a lot of fun I really I just really enjoyed that so when I finally got to to take something and watch it plug into a facility or to help build the facility so that you'd know it would plug into it. You started out with computers that were as big as the kitchen. <laughs> you know, and right. now and now we have you know now we have these little tiny things that can probably do more than the kitchen did, you know? So yes, you watch exactly. that change in the industry and you also watch Disney kind of grow up. If Disney was a kid from infancy when Walt started Disney to when you joined it, at what age would you say you joined that kid's life? And 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 of course now we know it is this as this bustling senior thing that's that's growing continues right. to grow. But what 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 sort of age level did you watch and what were the changes? Well, I joined Disney in 1980. Okay. And it was still owned pretty much by the family. They were the controlling shareholders. Ron Miller, Disney's son-in-law, was chairman at that point. They had been a movie company who got very sleepy, and then they had a theme park. So they Disneyland and Magic Kingdom in Florida. They had a few hotels, but it was Michael and Frank were not. Uh, involved at all and they had become a target of leverage buyout and oh my. Okay. Uh, that was after they opened Epcot so there was a lot of turmoil and angst as to what was going to happen to the company because the plan was to do the leverage buyout by this Mickey, I forget his name um, and sell off all the various parts, the animation catalog, the live action catalog the wow. studio, the theme parks so and I was working for the Chairman Board during that time, so it was a very exciting time and very angst-ridden. But what we saw was the transformation of Disney from a kind of family-held, sleepy company to um, shareholder value is the most thing. So, and you kind of go, well, that's because Michael and Frank owned a lot of the shares and the people that they, um, who actually saved the company, the Bass family, they had a lot of 
stake in the company now too. So, wow. you know, then it was, we've got to get back to being a movie company, we get back to doing live, you know, real pictures. Um, so, and then the creation of intellectual property that we could then exploit in the theme parks. Um, so it became a real business. I mean, synergy was the word that we used all the time, that you know, we all had to create assets for the other. It became a real, a real business. And with that, you kind of have some things that go awry. Good example was, um, you know, we used to have what we called aspirational uh, retail in the theme parks. You know, you had the beautiful clock store, and you had antique store, and you had some things where they sold very expensive pieces, and people didn't buy a lot of it. But it was the aspirational retail, and you know, then people would go buy sweatshirt. Well, there became a very business-driven. Well, you know, plush sells. $800 per square foot and this aspiration retail only sells $20 a square foot. We've got to change it all over. Well, then pretty soon you lose magic because sure. basically yeah. the MBAs have taken over the park. Right. Um, so we went through that phase too. And yeah, so I think I actually joined it as a teenager. And I'm, now I think the park, well, Disney is probably only in their middle ages. Oh, okay. You know? Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, because the people who have been at the helm, Michael Eisner, Bob Iger, Michael was a, a film man, television too, he worked for ABC. Iger was pretty much a TV guy who went into film. But now at the head of the company is a theme park guy. And unfortunately, he's inherited the company at a very bad time. The theme parks are closed, but he's done the right thing. So it'll be interesting to see how Disney pulls themselves, themselves out of this. Luckily, you know, they've got the new Disney home cable channel. Right. And um, well, that'll do well. So these days, now well. for that. They will be in everybody's living room, yeah. you know. If you well, have children, I'm sure it's close to 10 hours a day. Yeah. So. Well, I grew up with, you know, I mean, Walt, Walt came on every Sunday, you know, for me as a kid, he was, you know, every Sunday yeah. there was the Walt, I don't, I don't remember the name of it, but I just remember, you know, we were going to watch Walt Disney, um, you know. The Wonderful World of Color. That's right. That's what it was. Yeah. And he came well, on. Well, that's when finally TV, color TVs, but I, I don't remember what it was before then. <laughs> just Walt Disney. Well, I remember Mickey Mouse Club when I was a sure. kid. And that, I think that was why when I got to LA and looked at what I could do back in the, you know, like 1980. It was like, oh, Disney. Disney's a fun company. I've always liked that product. I'll just get a job at Disney. Get a job, any job. Was, did you just... Luckily, I had something that they were looking for. So you, you walked in and you it was like that? Or did you have to do a bunch of interviews? Or did you just kind of... Just right time, right oh, place. Yeah, you, have to do, you have to do a bunch of interviews. Oh, okay, okay, sure. <laughs> yes, I had to work not only in Imagineering, which they called W. Wed at that point, for Walter Elias Disney, but I also had to view, uh, interview a corporate because the whole computer industry yeah. within Disney was run from the corporate perspective. So from parks to the design studios to animation to you know, the business services, all of that was under one umbrella in uh, corporate. Um, wow. Tremendous changes, you know, that whole, because yeah, you, you rode that, you, I always thought of Disney as this creative thing, you know, because the, the way my exposure to Disney was I didn't ever work directly with Disney. I was sometimes a vendor to them. Um, and. And their art directors were notoriously powerful, you know, compared to yes. other clients that I had where, you know, the business side of it would, would, was in the production and project management side was more powerful. But at Disney, the art directors ruled, you know, so it, it, was, all, it was all about the quality end of the product. But you kind of watched that, you know, that balancing act that happened between business and art and creativity and you know, profitability and all that kind of stuff that happens. Right. So you were in a unique position to, to view all that. Wow. 
Yeah, and, and that actually, living through that, I've seen it both ways. And I've always thought it was better when you have the art director in charge, because that's where the vision comes from. If you, if you haven't got something that's fun to go see, people are going to go see. It doesn't matter if you brought it in on budget. Yeah. I liked it when the art director was in charge. But the key to that was getting a partnership between the art director and the project director. And a lot of that was is having a project manager who can ferret out the solutions to the problems. The art director's so busy, you know, inspecting our quality and looking at every little detail of how it looks, um, that the project manager, especially in the early stages, is the ones who can say, well, we could use this technology to better, we could use this technology, this one's gonna cost you less, so it'll save you money here because you're working within a budget they right. want to hit so that they can have the right profitability so it really is to me it was the key of having a really good partnership up front where some real key decisions are being made so that you can uh, put in the right building blocks um, i also think about project management as putting up a scaffold that people can walk around and go up and down and over and across so that people on the team know what their job is and how they interact with the other people in the team. So to me, that was always another really key point of bringing in a successful product is have a team that really interfaces well, who understands that you know, this is not competition, this is not combat. Yeah. We're really here to try to find a way to get this vision made into a reality within this box of money and time. And so, you know, we're all on the same team. We're not fighting for, you know, our architectural style or whatever that might be. We're fighting for total vision, total experience in the end. So, and that's... That's why I always try to choose my team members very carefully. <laughs> sure. I totally agree with you in there in, in the sense that that vision, that heart, that passion is going to come from the art side, from the creative dreamer. You know, and, I, and I've always been kind of one of those characters. I, I don't claim to be really good at it, but... but what I do claim about that is I'm really bad at the other part. <laughs> you know, so, you know the, the organization, and I, I mean, I'm not terrible at it, but, but it's it just, that's not as fun. It's not as, but it's, a, it's totally needed. It's totally necessary, because you do need the box. You know, the creative people do yeah. need the, the box to kind of, because otherwise they continue to create and make it better and better right. and better. But it never, you never end up with a product because there's a time when you put down the pencils. You know, okay. Exactly. You put down the crayons, we're going to, you know. <laughs> the drop the pencil phenomenon, the way I've learned to handle that is just redirect attention. Okay. Redirect attention of the art director to something because there's always a problem that needs solving. You kind of go, okay, that, that's good enough. Now let's go over here. <laughs> that's brilliant. I'm going to write that down. Because that that is a good key. Because because that, I mean that's one of the things the creative guys are always problem solvers. So you just kind of give them a new problem that you could control. A and new then, problem. Because <laughs> yeah. there's always a new one. Yeah, there's always going to be one there for them. A new a new challenge to keep them from from holding up the works. Wow, that's brilliant. Okay, so so those are. Obviously, those were the challenges, and you know, and the kind of the opportunities that that, that happened. Um, what are the other challenges? I mean, right now, of course, there's big challenges in our world, you know, with this whole quarantine thing and everything's closing down. But but what do you see the big challenges coming up in the future for this whole sort of theme park industry? What, what experience can you give us from? you know, the growing pains that Disney went through and how we're going to handle this upcoming, you know, next 10 years or so. Tough question. Well, you know, that is a tough question, especially because of, in light of the coronavirus, what uh, what will the marketplace do? Are people going to rush back? You know, an analogy is sort of like um, 
the 9-11 catastrophe. I mean, when, that was the first time the Disney parks were ever really closed for any anything. And they were empty because nobody was putting their child on a plane to fly anywhere at that point. Sure, sure. And the people who them at least saved uh, Walt Disney World were the Brits because they all have a lot of vacation homes and condos and things like that that are owned by British citizens. And so they spent the winter coming to Disney and really helping them regain. Um, But in this case, unless full, you know, social distancing is very hard to do in theme park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. maybe queue management will have to change and things like that, but you have to get people to trust again that it's okay to come out and be with other people. The other thing that I kind of in the back of my mind think is that maybe there will be more role for virtual theme park kinds of things or um, an experience that maybe starts in a different place and ends in a theme park at a specific amount of time. I don't know. that with There's so much of the theme park experience now that it is computer-generated and media-based. Uh, you know, you're, you're riding yeah, in yeah. basically a, a tube of different films going up and down, like the Harry Potter, Harry Potter rides or um, like the Dreaming rides, the big uh, got an Omnimax screen and then the big platform of, of uh, riders that goes up and down. So I would expect to see more media-based and maybe virtual-based. I don't know. I'm, it will be interesting to see how they handle yeah, well, the crowd and people manage because that's where the, the key probably is, is allowing people to keep their safe social distance but yet be in a uh, park like that. It'll be interesting to see what the movies do. I mean, the fact that people are going to be watching more and more movies at home over this period could, you know, install a lot of new habits. I mean, you see, even see Netflix and Amazon, uh, you know, they've got a huge uh, production capacity now because they realized, well, that's, that's the key. It's, get your intellectual property and your creative content produced by yourself. So that will be the challenge. Sure that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people are scratching their heads now. I'm in China, as you know, and um, it, it's it seems like we've come through it. You know, I mean, you can't really be sure. Yeah. But we we they took action quickly here and we went we had a kind yes. of a difficult two months. But but we're hard back into it, and you know the public memory isn't you know it's not very long. <laughs> you know? I mean, no. you know once we get back into our routines and the swing of things and get all the shops are pretty much open now. Everybody still wears their mask, but we're out doing the normal stuff that we, we were doing before. You know from two months ago and, yeah. and enduring that hardship for two months cleaned it out it, you know it it it, it, yes. it kind of slammed the door on what it was for for there but i don't see that happening in the rest of the world which concerns me um but at some point we'll get through it you know uh, we'll pop out the other side um and, and then i think things will kind of you know kind of gently go back together um and and we'll pick up where we kind of left off uh, I hope, you know, I, I hope, I, I think. I hope, is. yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole hammer and dance theory of this is that you try very hard to hammer the, the virus back into submission, which I think Chuck did a very good job of. I mean, closed the Wuhan down and keeping people out and keeping people sequestered for two months. And then you've got the longer period of the dance where it kind of shows itself back. Again, yeah. the, the virus, and you've got to go back into sequestration. Um, and the, the object being to really buy us time to not deplete our resources up front and, and to be able to buy us time until there is a vaccine. So the vaccine will probably be the part that eventually allows people to kind of go back to normal. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then, you know, and our own immune systems will probably kick in. That's the thing that will, you know, I mean, us humans are fairly, fairly resilient, you know, so we'll do a little bit of a clean out maybe and then get back to it. Yeah, the idea of herd inoculation or, you know, you get enough people within a society who had it, it protects the whole herd. Right. So we'll probably approach that at some point too in the next year. like Disney, you look at that and go, it has so many different arms of entertainment and merchandise yeah. and, and everything that it will survive. It will just concentrate on those areas where it can make money until the theme parks reopen. Sure, sure. And then, and, and like you say, you'll diversify and they'll, you know, there, there's there's always room for movies, you know, production movies and telling stories and people like that. And we, we now have this way through the, through the computers and, and streaming and so forth where they can, they can get in with a controlled group, you know, like your team that would be producing the movie and make sure everybody's happy and well, healthy in that group, make a movie. You know, and they could go in the park and make a movie because the park's closed now. So, <laughs> so it's true. you know, so they great time to do, do a movie in a closed theme park. That's right. So, so we should we should throw that out there so people get the idea and take advantage of this thing. You know, get the film crews together and get the out there. Because movie location, movie That's set. Right. It's much much cheaper now, guys. So you know, I mean, yeah, I mean the the, the chance that you were going to go close down Disney to make your movie. Just wasn't it was, there was no opportunity like that before, but now's the time. Actually, a funny story about kind of alluding to that is when we were doing the MGM theme park, there was this whole thing where we had sound stages, post production facilities, etc. And there was a catwalk up above, it was enclosed, but we it was an attraction where we showed people how movies were made, from shooting on a film stage to shooting in a water uh, oh, okay. special cool. effects yeah. set, um, etc. Well, <laughs> what really happened was the, the stars who were supposed to be shooting things did not like the fact that there were people up there watching them in their deck. So, you know, people, the stars come in and their rollers and their robes and things like that. And the, the people are blowing them out, just or their hair oh or whatever, my. putting their makeup on okay. just before they go into the stage. Stars didn't like that. So it just, it all kind of crumbled. Uh oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> you do not get to watch how Easter <laughs> Yeah, you don't get to go backstage unless you're special. Yeah, okay, I understand. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so. I think that they didn't really get to shoot was the uh, masked tears. The, the new Mouseketeers. Oh, okay. And of course you had Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and Christina Aguilera. They were all, you know, these little Mouseketeers. And they kind of came up through the... Wow. The See that whole industry, there's, there's so many things that blossomed from that, from that little creative seed that happened and a whole generation of entertainment. And you, you know, there, there's so many things that we don't, we kind of take for granted, you know. It seems like these guys came out of nowhere, but they were working. Yeah, no, they were. <laughs> yeah, they were working for years right. and years. I mean, how many people started out in a, you know in Paramount Park being the little street entertainer type character, you know, because they were they wanted to be an actor and that yeah. was the only job they could get, and then they carried <laughs> through, you know, to to be whatever. That's and, why I did not continue in acting or singing. <laughs> 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 there were a lot of those kind of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so what what other mistakes did you see happen in this industry that's kind of a fun question too is one one mistake i think disney did avoid fairly well was the idea of regional entertainment um, parks sort of uh, we call them what did we call them because i worked on the feasibility of these things for a couple of years with the Jim Rouse organization as a partner to Disney. And Disney finally said, no, if you do too many regional things, you start supplanting the need to see a theme park. Okay. So we never really invested in that. But the family entertainment 
things. Um, I, I think they are in direct competition with the Disney theme parks because they do give people an outlet. They normally would have had to go to a Universal or a SeaWorld or a, a Disney to go see. But if they can, the kids on a amusement park ride nearby home, they don't have to go sure. to just the park. Yeah, and it's less expensive and um, it's, yeah, you could fit it in the schedule yeah. a little bit easier. You didn't have to plan a whole vacation for a week and, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you could run down the street on the weekend and, and do something, you know. Right. Well, that's interesting. Exactly. You know, maybe, maybe the Disney going into Hong Kong and not building a big enough park to attract a large enough audience and maybe you know you're putting yourself in a situation where you're not sure what the chinese government and hong kong how they're getting along and can the people leave china just to go to hong kong and have that experience um on the other hand they have such a wonderful experience in the japanese parks i yeah. mean wow they have the perfect partner they built two gorgeous parks um, and the temperament of the Japanese people embracing the Disney characters, it was just like a pretty Yeah, that, that was for that actually, that is the best theme park on the planet, in my opinion. Disney Sea. Mine too. Yeah, it just. The Disney, it, Tokyo Disney Sea. Yeah, and, and absolutely. The best theme park on the planet. I went to Disneyland first time in 19. I think it was 1964, you know, in, in Anaheim, really? in the California thing. I was there, um, and and wow, you know what? I was a little kid, and it was amazing. But and I had that same wonder when I went to the to Japan and and went to the Disney Sea because yeah. they had really, wow, they really knocked it out of the park in in, in terms of, of really yeah, this industry. Yeah. It is an absolute polished jewel that's. There's just none, none other. This is a great team, and part of part of what was interesting about that, the you know, uh, Steve Kirk and his brother Tim, and, and that whole team, um, they kind of worked stealth. They were not during during Disney. You kind of well, you knew what was going on. It was sort of like, well, okay. <laughs> and they were working with the Japanese, and there was sort of a small group of approvals. It, it wasn't this huge, you know, top heavy thing that Disney can, can often do. And it went quickly. And the other interesting thing was that the, the lead designer, one of the Cook brothers, it, the team around him were like family and had been for a long time. Some were actually family members, so they had a really great ability to communicate and shorthand with each other. And they understood each other's design sensibilities. And they, you know, they really worked as a cohesive unit. They were, they were good. Now, when the production end, you know, it was a, it was a very demanding production as far as getting the rides done and the show elements done and all of that. And they brought in some of the old hands like Orlando Fronte and they brought in the old, you know, Epcot guys who had run gone on to run the departments later on and had since retired. Um, wow, and so they brought them back in and said, you know, we <laughs> we need to really hit the ground running on this. So the yeah, value that, of that all that experience. And the Japanese, you know, were just great partners. You know, they they knew in the end that they had a market that would embrace what they were doing. So they they were they did not chase out anywhere around that park. They they put the money. And the culture, like you said, the, the, the Japanese culture, yeah. it just embraces that whole, I don't know, they're just yeah. kind of made together. The one complaint I do have, I do have one complaint about Disney Sea. It was, when it was time to eat, it was hard to get food. Because <laughs> they just didn't quite have enough food and beverage, you know, to handle the throngs of people that, that all get hungry at the same time. You know, so so right. uh, that was my only complaint about it was they should have done more F and B. Yeah. <laughs>
that is one of those planning parameters when you're planning how a theme park is is partitioned up you do have to take into account how people eat yeah and in america you know we do kind of snacking all day long so the parameters are one thing in europe it's an extended eating period so you tend to plan differently. And I think they didn't understand that Japanese are more, we must eat now. This is the hour we eat, we're going to eat now, we're going to spend this amount of yeah. And little variation in that between yeah. It's all pretty much the same. So Yeah, yeah so, so right. part of that cultural thing is a, is a, is a difference there. What do you see, I mean, after we get past this crisis, well, where do you see the theme park industry kind of going? What do you think is going to be, you know, I think there always needs to be a place for friends and family to, to get, you know, it can't all be virtual. You know, we can't just look no. at the screen and we can't, we can't just glue ourselves to our phones. There, there has to be that social time. So I think there will always be a, a room for, for that. But, but tell us what you think. What do you think future-wise? One thing about the virtual world is it is easy to repurpose a an existing attraction by substituting new media in. So I think for a while, because of cost issues, you'll see more of that. You'll see new um, flying theater, media. I don't know if you would see a new Harry Potter ride, but Harry Potter, you know, that ride is what brings people in. But I think you'll tend to see a lot of more, more of the media-based change themselves out because it's something that is easy to do, something that they can uh, spend not as much money as building a whole thing and still advertise it to have people come in and see it. I also think one of the things that is enduringly popular in the parks it's, you know, kind of just old entertainment are the parades and the live shows. People love to go to those parades. People, you know, and the fireworks at the end and, the, you know, they all kind of started out with trying to extend your length of stay in a park because they realized the longer you stay, sure. the more apt you were to spend more money. You sure. buy the popcorn, you buy the hamburger, you maybe would catch it for a T-shirt or whatever. But in and of themselves, those things became real gems. You know, the electrical parade. Remember uh, when it, it showed up at Disney? Wow. It was like everybody had to stay to see the electrical Absolutely. The Epcot yeah. fire show. It was, it was magical. So just a lot of the basics are things parks can do to get people to stay, to get people to come. The live stage shows, you know, they're, they're generally always packed. If you get a name entertainer there who is coming to, to do something or... Um, just, just a really good stage show. I mean, I remember the Barbie stage show at, at Epcot. It was kind of this place you wonder why Barbie and Epcot. They were, probably would have been better in the Magic Kingdom. It was very popular. That sort of thing, you know, people just love to come and see. It's another reason to go to the park. The other thing I think that Disney um, invoked, and I would think a lot of other groups will do this, are the um, seasonal festivals. Uh, yeah. Disney has the food festival which is incredibly uh, appealing and it just brings all kinds of people out and it's just a, a quick overlay to epcot um it's not a huge investment it's got a lot of work parts operation so that takes some some time to figure out and to get right uh, at the, the studio tour the christmas show of the Osborne Family Light Show. Everybody comes to see that. So the little seasonal things that people can do, that the parks can do to kind of increase their their attendance. Um, and just keep doing that and bringing people back to have the capital to do the next big thing. And I'm sure that will be technology driven because most everything is technology driven. But you can't forget the, the old entertainment value that why people come that social space to all look at something together it's kind of a difference between watching a movie at home and watching a movie in a theater 
You know, when you watch a movie in theater with a group of other people, it's it's a shared communal experience, and you feed off of each other, even though you're not talking to each other. That shared sense of emotion, or you know, surprise, or whatever, it, it heightens the experience of the movie. And I think it's the same in a theme park when you're when you're standing there in the Epcot or Magic Kingdom uh, fireworks show at the end of the night and. Magic Kingdom and Tinkerbell flies. And it's like, oh my God, you know, all the kids you can see tears in their eyes because they remember when and they can look at their kid having that same magic. And it's, it's, yeah, it's well, old fashioned entertainment, but it's still work. Hopefully that future is going to stay with us. I think, you know, with the, the, that's always something that we, you know, that was one of the things that always blew my skirt up about what I did. As hard as things got during the process of building or, you know, or the politics of doing this or whatever, or trying to get that. There was a time when you walked out when it was done and it was operating and you, and you, and, and you get to turn around and see the looks on people's faces. You know, when, when, exactly. you know, because we watched the whole thing grow up out of nothing, you know, and watched all the bits and pieces and know what all the fights are and what all the challenges were. Then when it finally happens and you get to kind of turn around and look at what is, this is why we did this. You know, when you see, yeah. when you, when you, yeah, and, when you, you, and then, and then it's amazing because it refreshes your viewpoint. You know, it's like when I take my son and I go look at one of the attractions or something that we made, I look at it through his eyes and it's, it's right. way different, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know? it so, is, it's way different. Yeah. You no longer see that sprinkler cap yeah. up on top of the it's, ceiling. Yeah. Like they never paint that yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, so all of a sudden that stuff fades away. Yeah. It's kind of like you finally drop the pencil. Yeah. Yeah, you finally get to drop the pencil and take the, the other viewpoint. So, so down to the anybody that's interested in this sort of a, a life um, that, that Julian and, and I have shared a little bit of uh, together, and I'm grateful for that. Um, how how would someone? It's changed when we when we got into it. Really. Yeah, it, it, we didn't really know it was a thing. We sort of, it sort of snuck up on us, and then we got involved with it. Um, nowadays, you can get a degree in in theme park stuff, you right. you know, and, and hospitality yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but what would you recommend? Is there something that you would recommend if somebody's interested in this this life that we're talking about? It's sort of like you nowadays you need some training in in whatever art form or whatever business uh, arm you are going into. So you probably would have to get a degree in something, uh, be that finance, architecture, be that engineering trade, be that uh, art. In in my day, a lot of people who were directors came from stage theater. They were lighting directors, or they were set designers, or they were, you know, they had gotten a degree in theater arts. Um, because at that point, rides were just really going through set pieces, right. <laughs> lighting directly to focus your attention. So I would say that's still a worthwhile endeavor: is get a good training in whatever form gives you passion. And then the idea would be to get kind of like I did, if you want to get into theme parks, which is, was not my aim, but it's what I ended up doing, is get a job, any job, in, in a theme park design company, or you know, if you'd rather work in the parks themselves, an operation company, design is where we are. And go out and make yourself known and talk to people, and have lunch with them, and ask them what they do, and, and try to find a mentor or two or three mentors or somebody there and want to sit at the foot of lessons. Because in the end, if you want to advance, you're going to have to have somebody up near the top. So look at that person over there. They've got, you know, talent. Because it's a huge field, and there's a lot of people who are trying to get into it. So a lot of times it's not what you know, it's 
who you know, yeah. but you have to have the chops to be able to actually deliver when your <clears throat> time on stage comes, <laughs> you know. Valuable stuff, universal advice. No matter, even if you didn't want to do theme park, you, you know, take those same principles of it, wherever you want to go. Do those, learn your chops, do the fundamentals, get in the proximity of it, and find the mentors. You know, and then and then shine a little bit. Um, you know, because like you say, be a good team member. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and be a really good team member because the. The thing about building a theme park these days is it takes huge teams of people. It's not just, you know, putting on a stage and a few lights and a little sound system and away we go. I mean, it's all kinds of engineering traits. So having the opportunity to learn what other people do and learn what kind of problems you should bring to them to solve. And, you know, it is, and being appreciative of what they do, understanding that they're doing things you could never figure out, right. <laughs> and why it's important to have that on the team. You know, being a good team member is a another really key point in in putting a project together. I agree, and then and part of that training as a team member is knowing where your part is, and you know, and first right. of all, kind of knowing what the what all the parts are. That's a, that's a huge challenge these days because there's a lot of different parts. But kind of knowing how they fit together, even though you're not an expert over there, you know you need it, you know. And I think that's that's some of the mistakes that the you know the the Chinese guys that are that are kind of getting into this business don't they don't realize what all the parts are and they don't know why they need them, you know. <laughs> so and then and then until you know it hits them in the face and they go, oh my God, we've got this this whole thing missing. What do we do now? Okay. Well, thank you very, very, very much, Julianne. It's, it's wonderful you to, to take thank some time you. with you, and and uh, I'm sure we'll do this some more. And I also want to get your your talented and, and handsome husband maybe to do one of these too. Completely different field, you know, because uh, you know not not <laughs> in the theme park. Yeah. yeah. So he but he did aircraft control, which I you know I don't know that much. I know they exist, but I don't know really. You know what? What's a day in the life of an aircraft control? Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so maybe we can convince Mark to do one of these too. That would be great. I'd love that. Okay. I'm sure you'd be happy to. Bob, great to see you again. Okay, Julia. Thanks so much, and thanks again. We'll we'll talk to you very soon. Take care. Be safe. All right. Bye. -bye.